Hey, Rarecast listeners, Global Genes Next 2021, A Time for Resilience and Ingenuity, is now available to download. This is our annual report on the major developments in rare disease and looks ahead to trends that are reshaping the landscape. To get your free electronic copy, go to globalgenes.org and look for a link to the report on the homepage. You can also go to bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. That's bit.ly forward slash 2021 next report. The electronic version is free. On-demand print copies can also be ordered for a fee. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. In his new book, Emmy-winning news and documentary television producer Miguel Sancho recounts the efforts he and his wife Felicia Morton went through to get their son Sebastian diagnosed and treated for chronic granulatomous disease, a rare and deadly immunodeficiency. The book, More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting Edge of Medicine that Cured the Incurable, follows some familiar territory for books in the genre but diverges in its willingness to explore the strains on a marriage that can arise when a child becomes ill with a rare and deadly disease, the difficulties parents can have coping, and the post-traumatic stress disorder that can follow even a successful cure. We spoke to Sancho and Morton about their journey to get their son diagnosed and treated, the challenges they faced, and how, after a period of relying on the generosity of others, they found healing and turning their attention outward to help others. Miguel, Felicia, thanks for joining us. Thank Thank you you so much for having us. This is very exciting and we're we're honored to to be here. We're going to talk about your book, More Than You Can Handle, your son's rare immunodeficiency and, and your willingness to really address some of the issues that I think many folks in the rare disease community experience, but don't talk too openly about. And that's the the turmoil that parents and families go through, not only along the path to a a diagnosis and treatment, but afterwards as well. Uh, Let's start with your son, Sebastian, who was diagnosed with the rare and life-threatening immune deficiency, CGD. For listeners not familiar with that, what is CGD? Essentially, it's a uh, monogenetic mutation on the X chromosome that results in the inability of a crucial and important cell within the immune system, a granulocyte called the neutrophil, uh, to function properly. The neutrophil's main job is to race to the site of infection when the body encounters uh, one of a family of bacterial or fungal uh, pathogens. And when the infection commences, the neutrophil comes to essentially kill off those pathogen cells. In CGD, the body can produce adequate supplies of neutrophils. You got plenty of them. They just don't work. They are unable to perform their function. And that 
results in the body's inability to fight off the infection and also results in the kind of clumping and clustering of these cells at the site of infection as they kind of pile up, uh, unable to, to perform, and that causes um, a little uh, node or globule called a granuloma. What many people also don't know about um, CDD is that it's an inherited disease. Uh, the um, mother, the, the carrier mother, uh, is, is generally asymptomatic, um, but can be um, quite symptomatic. So it, it uh, runs the gamut in terms of how women can present when they're carrying this gene. Uh, so there's more uh, research, there's more awareness that we're doing on that front so that uh, mothers and uh, sisters can also be empowered about their health. And, and certainly um, what a lot of the women are facing are, are not anywhere near the um, level of severity or um, uh, lethal, in some cases, uh, uh, level of disease that uh, CGD can uh, cause uh, in terms of risk to patients. But uh, we're also making sure that that their voices are heard and, and they're getting access to the treatment they need. And in some cases, their levels of um, uh, what's called lionization, where, where these neutrophil uh, work or don't, can be quite severe as well. well. How was Sebastian diagnosed and what were you told when, when the doctor gave you the diagnosis? Uh, basically, Sebastian was born perfectly healthy, May 1st, 2012. And we went home with what we assumed to be a just beautiful, perfectly healthy baby boy. And then about seven or eight weeks after he was born, he started developing what became a series of mysterious and rather serious uh, infections that uh, required hospitalizations, intense doses of uh, antibiotics, surgeries uh, to um, drain abscesses. And as you can imagine, uh, for parents who really hadn't had that much experience with um, intense medical situations at all, either with ourselves or with our um, beautiful little daughter who was four years older, this completely, you know, plunged us into a, into a whole other world of uh, stress and anxiety. What treatment options were you given at the time? Well, if you're talking about pre-diagnosis, the treatment options were, we're not sure what's going on. We like, and I'm sure many, many uh, parents and patients uh, who've encountered and been diagnosed with rare disease can relate to this, what is off, often referred to as the diagnostic odyssey, where you have literally a dozen different doctors, very reputable, competent doctors and specialists who are scratching their heads and don't know what to do. And it wasn't until Felicia kind of took charge of the situation that we got to a diagnosis Thankfully, I had a background in healthcare public relations, actually, and I had worked on some communications projects for various treatments and drugs. And um, I looked at my son's symptoms and I thought, hmm, you know, even though our doctors in, in Manhattan, which we often think is the center of all things, and they, they're very good, uh, and they, they were telling us that you know some kids just get these, some babies experience this. Don't worry. Uh, I I was putting the dots together, and I thought there might be something happening um, with Sebastian's uh, immune function. We need to look at that. And so I mentioned that to our our doctor, and he said, "Well, I guess you could 
uh, look into that. And, and um, he referred me to an immunologist and the immunologist, which, uh, you know, I, I credit with um, being one of the many angels who, who helped save Sebastian's life. She uh, is in Miguel's book and, and she is the one who diagnosed Sebastian with chronic granulatomous disease or CGD uh, when he was about five months old. And at that time, did, did were there treatments they presented to you as possibilities? Danny, obviously, human memory works in a variety of ways. And there's some things that just are kind of a blur and others you remember like they happened five minutes ago, right? So, and I think I can speak for not only Felicia, but every parent who's received this diagnosis that you can almost remember it frame by frame, second by second. Uh, I got the phone call that one of these tests for this exotic disease called CGT had come back positive. I found that hard to accept. I didn't quite get my mind around it when I got the phone call. Um, you know, I told Felicia that night, the next day we were called immediately into the immunologist's office and they basically said that because of this condition, it wasn't going away. He could either pursue, we could either pursue a approach to managing the disease. And frankly, managing the disease has become much more of a hopeful path uh, for a lot of people, thanks to some of the amazing advances in treatment that have uh, evolved in the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, but because of Sebastian's particular condition, right, uh, he had zero percent functioning of these cells. The Like many immune diseases, there's various iterations or uh, variations of it. You, you know, you can have severe, mild, super severe, and he had the worst possible uh, variation of the disease. So he was going to have a, you know, quite possibly a very tough time, both in terms of his quality and quantity of life. So we could do that. And we actually did end up trying to manage the disease for about three years, but we were also told there was one and only one at that time, truly known, proven curative treatment. And that was, of course, a hematopoietic stem cell transplant, more colloquially known as a bone marrow transplant. You actually settled on uh, an umbilical cord blood transplant. Can you explain why you decided to go that route? And rather than settling on it, it was, it was our only option um, that we had. Uh, we had tried various different paths to a cure. And the most common one uh, would be to look for a bone marrow match, a donor. And we test our daughter. She wasn't a match. That was our first setback. Uh, then we went to be the match and uh, the National Bone Marrow Registry. And we could not find one match there. Actually, you know, several possible matches came up around the world. But um, and we understand some people came in to um, were, and were open to be donors. But upon further analysis, they were not good matches either. Uh, so that was another setback. And, and these things can take years to to figure out, mind you. So um, so we were left with only one choice, and that was an umbilical unrelated uh, donor uh, transplant. Uh, one of the best hospital centers to do that is North Carolina, where they have a very robust umbilical cord banking system uh, in the state. And so uh, and they also have a vast experience with CGD transplants uh, and, and treating CGD patients. So 
uh, I had spoken to some other mothers whose sons had undergone transplant there, and they just wowed me, actually. Uh, we had gone on um, our own odyssey with uh, re- reaching out to other transplant centers, meeting doctors across the country. Uh, and from what I'd heard from these moms, and uh, which led me to speak to the doctors personally, I really felt confident that this was the way that we, we, we needed to go. A couple of quick things that I learned in this process, because like many parents, I entered this whole world with no background at all and no no bearings, just, uh, you know, kind of nightmare scenarios bouncing around my head. Uh, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, you know, finding a match for bone marrow donation or a stem cell donation is not the same thing as donating blood, right? It's not the AB typing system that we all know from Red Cross blood drives. It's this much more sophisticated HLA typing uh, of which there are trillions, literally, of possible types. And it turns out, as we learned, that uh, the mixed ethnicity of our son played a large role in the typing and the difficulty in finding a typing, Um, just because certain genes, certain alleles are more common among certain uh, nationalities and ethnicities. Uh, our son happens to be possibly one of the few uh, homo sapiens on planet Earth with both Costa Rican and uh, largely Finnish blood uh, or genes rather swimming around his his chromosomes. So uh, he was rare um, on a number of levels. Uh, so that was that was its own challenge. And then when it came to the umbilical cord typing, you know, what you're looking for ideally is a six out of six match on the loci on the on the chromosome that that is required for matching and obviously six out of six is great we went down there and we kind of signed on for the uh, whole process because we had found a five out of six match a beautiful gorgeous five out of six donor cell unit and then a week into the process after the chemotherapy had already begun to eliminate his existing immune system and kill off his existing white blood cells. We were told that actually that five out of six match, even though it was a good match, had not passed a potency assay. In other words, the cells were a great match, but it didn't look like they were going to replicate and, and engraft and reproduce. So we had to go to plan B, literally the last possible option, the very limits of kind of the risk tolerance for this process, and use the backup match, which was a four out of six umbilical cord blood donor unit. And that's also the lowest, as you may know, that that they will uh, do um, when it comes to. That's the lowest they will use. Um, This was actually a real gut punch because there was no choice, but you had to go through the the regimen of chemotherapy to knock out his immune system before they can actually test whether these cells have the the potency and the ability to engraft. Uh, There were a couple of other options they explored of actually potentially mixing the two cord blood samples they had. What what was that discussion like? And what was it like for you emotionally to see your, your kid's immune system knocked out and, and down to this this one shot on goal to find that they now can't use this match for him? That's a great question. And uh you know, you 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 said it so well. You know, you we had spent years, plural deciding on the best course of action. And I really want to emphasize that it was Felicia leading the charge, both doing the research and kind of um, convincing me that this was the, the way forward. We had placed 
so much trust and faith in the doctors at Duke, who are wonderful, by the way, and their excellent track record. We knew that we were in the right place. We were really confident uh, of that. And we'd signed this very intimidating and scary consent form to initiate the process. Okay. And it was all hanging on our optimism was all hanging on this beautiful five out of six donor unit. And then after the train had already left the station and, uh, and his immune system had already been wiped out, we were, that was kind of, the rug was kind of pulled uh, out from under us. And it's it's nobody's fault. The the reason that happens is because they have to, they can only do the potency assay after they've started uh, thawing the unit. And those, those results come back. They take about a week to come back. And the timing of course is crucial with everything as well as the dosage and the matching. It's it's an extraordinarily intricate process. Uh, So, there was no other way to find out earlier. Um, although, believe me, I uh, had some hard questions about why we couldn't find out earlier, but that was the answer, and I was ultimately satisfied by that answer. But yeah, um, and then the, the the compounding complication was that the the doctors there were two options, as you just said, Danny. You could do a combined double dose with the five out of six and the four out of six, which is something that they do double doses often when they're trying to do cord blood transplants with larger, older patients, because um, you need a certain number of cells per kilogram uh, to pull off an engraftment. And so if there's somebody who's larger than a small child, they will sometimes need two doses. So that's not unheard of, but there were potential downsides to that post-transplant and the doctors had <clears throat> a bit of a difference of opinion on that. And that was the first time they were not unanimous in their uh, advice, which was yet another um, reason for us to uh, chew our fingernails. So ultimately, we went with the four out of six. And like you said, it was a one shot on goal, the only shot we could take. And I'm very relieved to say it worked out. Ultimately, the, the transplant was successful. How, how is Sebastian today? Uh, right now, he's in his rehearsal for Little Orphan Annie. He uh, won the role of President Roosevelt. Uh, he's in third grade, and he's very uh, happy and active, and uh, people are often surprised when they hear about our story. They, they have no idea. He's, thank, thankfully, he's, he's very well. The title of the book, More Than You Can Handle, comes from uh, another mom, uh, a woman uh, of a child named Rocco, who has a quote near the end of the book. Can can you explain where the title comes from? Yes. Well, uh, one of the one of the themes of the book, uh, and kind of themes in our relationship, frankly, has been um, our. Uh, different and sometimes divergent um, approaches to faith. And, you know, one of the um, things that, you know, as often said is that, um, you know, God never gives you more than you can handle. And that very well might be true. But in some cases, uh, certainly with mine, it did indeed feel like I was being overwhelmed and crushed by these circumstances. Um, and yes, the woman uh, who had uh, kind of mentioned that, said that to me in the course of our interview, Melissa Fernandez is one of the strongest and most inspiring women we know and kind of mirrored our story in a number of, you know, kind of interesting symmetrical ways in that, you know, she, her son was almost identical, had almost an identical diagnosis, 
had also gone through a transplant at Duke um, and on and on, uh, had said, yes, uh, due to certain circumstances that she'd been dealt, she really felt that God had given her more than she could handle. Um, but as we found out, um, again, largely through Felicia's strength and the strength of her faith, um, we were indeed able to, to make it to the finish line. Rare disease stories like Sebastian are often heroic tales of science and persistence and dedication triumphing over our genes. You spend time shedding some light on the challenges parents as human beings face, both with their own difficulty coping with the the circumstances and strains of being in a situation like this and the strains it has on a marriage. What was your thinking, including this in the book? And and did the two of you discuss that at all? You know, I'm a journalist and I've spent, you know, 20 years kind of dissecting other people's lives and applying my critical facilities to other people's actions and decisions under stress. Um, So I thought it was appropriate and um, overdue, perhaps, for me to do the same thing with myself on this particular story, which happened to involve us and our family. And uh, yeah, I mean, look, the short answer is we were put in an extraordinarily stressful situation. Some people handle that kind of extraordinary stress with kind of natural nobility. Some of them, people are just uh, more easily able to adapt and cope and rise above things. And some people aren't. And I found out that I was not one of the people who can kind of roll with the punches that well. And as a result, um, you know, I found myself kind of falling apart and behaving in ways that uh, I would consider pretty regrettable. And I ultimately found out that you know, I'm not the only one. Um, there are plenty of parents who don't suddenly become, you know, Mother Teresa or, you know, pick the pick the saint of your choice uh, when they're exposed to these kinds of pressures. And one of the reasons I wanted to include that in there is because I wanted to let them know that you, know, you, you shouldn't be proud of that. You, know, you, you don't need to brag about your failures. But you don't need to hate yourself to the point of feeling ashamed, um, but you do need to you know, look yourself in the eye, do a sober assessment of what is going wrong, and try the best you can to take remedial action so that you can hold up to your, your responsibilities. You mentioned that Felicia had her Catholicism as a, a source of strength. You weren't passive about your situation. You You went through a a number of steps to find different means of, of coping. What was that particular journey like? And and what did you find, if any, had a positive effect? Yeah. So just real quick correction. I think, you know, Felicia um, kind of joined me going to uh, Catholic mass because that's how I was raised. Um, I'll let her describe her own faith, but I think it might be slightly um, uh, incomplete to just uh, kind of call her uh, label her a Catholic. I had been raised in a faith-filled home with my uh, family, and we were part of a a very wonderful church community uh, in Chicago. And although I had moved away and and we were living in Manhattan and uh, 
sort of focusing on the go-go life in the city. Uh, and that wasn't really a part of my life bef- uh, as much before Sebastian was born. I did have that well to draw on where I knew how to pray. I knew how to let things go when they were out of my control. Uh, so much of what people think about faith is that it's um, like a cop-out or, you know, you're just going to uh, do that and not do the work. Um, that No, it's it's the opposite of that. It's doing everything that you can do, all the research that led us to the decisions. Uh, that, that was um, mostly... Uh, undertaken by myself. And then once I got to the point where we had made that decision and we made our peace with it, when uh, the umbilical cord blood was uh, flowing into Sebastian's veins, I I had to let go at that point. It's very difficult for parents to let go. It's very difficult for anyone um, to let go and and to not have uh, the sense that they're in control anymore. And so I let Sebastian go uh, into the hands of the doctors, and I let Sebastian go into the hands of God. And that was a tremendous relief for me because we put ourselves under so much undue pressure uh, trying to control things that we can't control. So it's really um, the wisdom of discernment that we need uh, to know when we can be in control and when we can't, and when we can't to uh, then uh, find ways to do that. And letting um, God uh, take control is, is the best way I know how. And so uh, Miguel and I had a lot of discussions about that, and a lot of his book is really, if you look at it, um, sort of the, uh, if you want to boil it down to the masculine and, and feminine, sort of the stereotypical ways of, of handling things, uh, he, uh, like many uh, men, unfortunately, uh, don't have a lot of tools to handle things that are out of their control, to discuss, you know, what they're going through emotionally, to even address it, to understand it, uh, and uh, that's a, a lot of what you know what happens in, in terms of our society. It's societal norms uh, that that we're also trying to, I think, break down with this in this book. That you know, it's okay to ask for help. It's actually a sign of strength, not weakness, um, to ask for help. To uh, look for uh, what Miguel's going to get into in terms of his different uh, modalities to um, to cope with this. So. Uh, so yes, my faith did help me, but um, uh, of course, I was much more comfortable with availing myself to many kinds of coping mechanisms from therapy to, um, you know, fellowship with friends, calling on my friends, leaning on them um, spiritually, finding strength in ways that could lift me up and and keep me um, functioning through this process. Uh, Miguel, what did, what did you ultimately find helpful, if anything? Yeah, well, so Felicia's right. Um, you know, again, it's almost kind of eye-rollingly stereotypical uh, that I had this kind of, you know, almost macho sense of what um, a man should be doing, what I should be doing, what the head of the household should be doing to handle this. On top of that, layer on top of that, that I'm a professional television producer, and one of the things that TV producers do is try to control everything, try to call all the shots, try to, um, you know, make sure that everything goes according to plan. So to be thrust into a situation where I had no control, no status, no authority, uh, and where my, um, you know, decisions really, in my opinion, mattered something, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't, gonna, it wasn't going to do much to save my son. You know, I didn't know anything about immunology or uh, uh, transplantation. So that was a profoundly humbling and emasculating experience for me in a lot of ways. And you know, I, like I said, 
I, I didn't necessarily handle it well. I, I tried a number of uh, failed approaches, right? I tried denial. I tried stoicism. I tried workaholism. Uh, I tried uh, bourbon and cannabis. Um, and none of them really... Um, you know, gave me the, the, the relief that I was looking for. And ultimately, um, when, you know, our, our crisis extended not just to the medical situation, but to our domestic situation, it was quite clear to me that I had to find better modes of, of uh, addressing my, my pain and my helplessness and my fear. So uh, these are all going to sound really stereotypical, but the bottom line is I ended up you know, hopscotching around and finding a kind of cafeteria-like uh, approach uh, that incorporated elements of meditation, therapy, medication. Uh, I'll say it, yes, medication. Um, and, you know, exercise um, to kind of get me back on track. I will also say this, though. One thing that I found remarkably uplifting was immersing myself in the science itself just learning about the body, learning about the immune system, learning about the amazing things that we as a species have been able to learn and achieve in this field. It is wonderful. It is amazing. It is uplifting. It is a source of optimism in a world that is often very times cynical and depressing. And, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, where I put my faith and where Felicia put her faith, one of the kind of more elegant syntheses of uh, that whole kind of tension between the scientific and the spiritual, I think, was a Freeman Dyson quote that he said, I, and I might get this wrong, but I believe he said, yes, God exists and technology is his greatest gift. And again, just witnessing what was taking place in that unit, the science, the medicine, and also the intense and transcendent love bestowed on these patients by the doctors and the nurses was very sustaining for me on a number of levels. At Duke, a social worker stressed the importance of a calm home for Sebastian's healing. The two of you entered marriage counseling when Sebastian was through his toughest stretch. The counselor concluded you had a deeply dysfunctional marriage. How did the strain of Sebastian's illness reveal or, or fuel that dysfunction? Well, it rips you open, right? I mean, that's what Felicia said, you know, it kind of breaks you apart and and strips away whatever you've been doing to kind of camouflage uh, or or spackle over you know the cracks in your self in your soul in your psyche and your relationships so uh you know i think felicia very astutely said that okay now we've got sebastian's situation somewhat under control let's do some work on our relationship as as miguel was talking i think that what's really phenomenal about this is that uh, for many people, um, therapy, marriage counseling, meditation, uh, they're, they're very normal. But Miguel was very uh, averse to this. Um, that was his personality. So for him, this journey has been quite, um, quite, quite a 180 for him to, to do this. Um, and after looking into this more, I think that, um, and, and talking to a lot of families in the rare disease community, it's not uncommon for the fathers to have these sorts of challenges in terms of 
um, relating to the situation, uh, being able to relate to their wives and and um, have that sort of peace. Ultimately, um, my mission, as I supported Miguel in this book, is to help families cope in ways that are the best for the children. Because if you do have a home that is peaceful, if you do have uh, parents that can get along and, and share peace with each other, you're going to be able to share that peace with the child. That is one thing that you can control throughout the entire uh, duration of this illness. And so uh, what better gift than you give to, can you give to your child? And so um, my faith, of course, helped me do that. I was able to pray and bring that sense of peace to Sebastian's bedside for the duration of his transplant and, and beyond. So uh, I think that uh, all parents, whether you have a, an ill child or not, uh, really need to think about what they're modeling for their kids and how they can um, help them reduce anxiety in, in all aspects, especially now during um, the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. It's, it's even more um, important for, for, all, for all people who are, who are not going through a, a rare disease uh, journey like we did. Your son beat the odds after this massive disruption to your lives. You returned back home to New York, but you, you haven't quite recovered as a family. There are triggers that set off bouts of post-traumatic stress syndrome. I, I think people think of a successful transplant as crossing the finish line, but what are those moments of PTSD like? Yeah, so we made it home. In fall of 2016, excuse me, the fall of 2016, we celebrated a wonderful holiday season. Uh, we were supposed to be having a Hollywood ending, and it was all supposed to be, you know, wrapped up in a bow. And what ended up happening is Sebastian had a relatively minor, and I really want to stress this because so many other patients have major post-transplant complications. Sebastian had a relatively minor transplant uh, transplant complication, and uh, yeah, it just brought it all back for me. And I kind of fell apart again. And it was a problem. And, you know, you, you want to think that your health, your um, mental fortitude just tracks in perfect parallel with, with the child's health. You know, cure the child, cure the relationship, cure yourself, the whole thing. And uh, it's not quite that simple. So I think we're, we're in a much better place on that front these days. Like if, uh, you know, Sebastian gets a cut or a bruise or gets a cold, um, you know, it doesn't uh, trigger us the way it used to. So, you know, time helps with that. You know, the brain chemistry ultimately does stabilize somewhat uh, with, <laughs> with time and with the proper attention. But it's still something like being... And again, I don't want to, I don't, it's a bit of a strange analogy, but the analogy was made by an expert in this to something like coming back from war for a, for a combat soldier. And all the, some of the same dynamics of PTSD can apply. Felicia promised Sebastian a, a dog when he returned home. You, you adopted a dog that you describe as a, a mongrel with a walnut brain and it's jittery, sick, scarred, and scared. The dog was a bit of a transformation for Miguel and, and the family after years of being focused on your own problems that allowed you to 
direct your attention outside, as you said, to be providers of charity for once instead of receivers. You, you went on from there to do other volunteer work. What's that experience been like? And, and how has it been part of your own healing? Uh, yes, well, I was so grateful because many women had been available to me who were CGD moms and they had pointed the way to me. It's kind of like, um, you know, just, just trying to find um, a life preserver on a stormy sea and, and, and then you get to the next one and then you, you, you uh, are able to make your way out of, of what just seems like a, a desperate and confusing and, and very deadly situation. These women were there for me and I wanted to be able to pay that back and pay that forward. And at the time, there was really um, a void in our country and in our continent for um, CGD advocacy. Uh, and there, there had been a smaller organization, fortunately, the woman who was, was one of the, my, my, my guides uh, in this process, she, she unfortunately passed away. She was, she's an older woman. Her name's Mary Hurley. She had two sons who had, um, who have and had CGD. One unfortunately passed and now one is um, in his late 30s, I believe. And so she brought her decades of experience to our community, to me personally. And I, I'm always will be so grateful for her guidance. And so when she passed, it was clear to me that someone needed to step in. I had been doing some advocacy work with the Immune Deficiency Foundation. I helped them launch uh, the Living with CGD website, and I wrote for the blog covering you know, all these issues and, and stories about moms and successful transplants or people who are living successfully with CGD even. And um, I really wanted to, uh, to do that uh, in a really focused way for our community and also focusing on CGD carriers, uh, the women who uh, carry the gene who also can have a lot of um, health issues associated with that. So um, that's where uh, the CGD Association of America was born. Um, th thankfully, I had a lot of support from uh, some of the doctors mentioned the book uh, who work at the NIH and um, with uh, CGD specialists across the country who who came on board um, on my uh, CGD uh, medical advisory board and uh, patients uh, as well. So I've been very blessed to be able to, to take that on. And, and we've been doing a lot of, of good work to uh, raise awareness for the issue, um, help people um, uh, understand what their symptoms are, get the treatment that they need, uh, and also we're, we're helping to advance uh, some research as well. And just to re drill home that point, yeah, I mean, you spend so much time with this in this process, are kind of focused on your own intimate problems, whether it's the health problems with this with your child, or um, you know the, the kind of mental health problems or emotional problems that I was struggling with or the relationship problems. So it was wonderful and a wonderful luxury and a blessing to be able to look outwards and be able to care for and start thinking about other people's problems, other beings' problems, starting with this little 11-pound mutt that um, has just been wonderfully uh, a wonderful addition to our family. And Felicia's, you know, just heroic, I think, in terms of how she's redirected so much of her energy to helping other families who've gone through similar things, you know, is going to um, just make a, such a profound difference on a daily basis. Uh, and 
I look forward to this post-COVID world where we can, I can do more. You know, I'd volunteered to teach some Sunday school. That was very fulfilling. We've given some of the proceeds from this book to charity. Not enough. We want to give more. And um, it's going to be great when we're going to be able to, again, uh, do what Felicia is talking about, just giving back instead of just receiving. The book is More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting Edge Medicine that Cured the Incurable. But Miguel Sancho and Felicia Morton, thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful being here. and Great questions. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com. 